Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. If you had two businesses who were operating in the same market and basically competing with each other, and in one business, you had 100 people, all of whom knew what the business was and what it was going to take to be successful. And those 100 people were all working together to make that business successful. And in the other one, you had 20 people at the top and the other 80 people were waiting to be told what they should do, but they didn't really have any understanding of where the business was or where it was going. If those two companies were competing with each other, which one do you think would be more successful? This is Bo Burlingham, one of my heroes, and his work has over the years had a huge impact on how I think and do business, and of course how we have developed and done things here at Hospitality Mavericks. He is a contributing writer at Forbes and was for more than 33 years editor-at-large at Inc. magazine. Along the way, he has written some well-known business books. The most recent one is Finish Big on how great entrepreneurs exit their companies on top, and one of my favorite books, Small Giants. Companies that choose to be great instead of big. He has, together with Paul Spiegelman, launched Small Giants Community and his co author with some great business people like Jack's Jack, where they wrote together The Great Game of Business and A Stake in the Outcome, and also written a book with Norm Brodsky that's called Street Smarts. The vision for this conversation is to share with you some of the unique knowledge and insight Bo have collected over the years from great leaders and organizations that know and do deliver great results and impact to all stakeholders. There was so much to share, so Bo and I talked for a long time and found out that we were spending much more time than we normally do in an episode, but that was all fine because then I choose just to chop the interview into two. So today you will get part one and next week you will get part two. So lots of great insights for you in the coming weeks. In part one, we will dive into Bo's incredible journey and purpose as well as mission and what he had learned working with Jack Stack, what the great game of business is and how you prepare for a recession better. He also gives insights into Danny Meyer's journey with Union Square Hospitality and how they made decision about scaling Shake Shack. And his first meeting with Singermans is also being discussed and he talks about that he meet this unique culture and the way of doing business that actually led him to writing small giants in the end but before you tune in don't miss out on the new free white paper we did in collaboration with be simply the six tenants of agile hospitality six tenants every leader needs to survive and thrive in the new era of hospitality click the link in the show notes and get your Free copy today. Over to you, Bo. 
When I started uh, many years ago to study today's guest, which I feel very grateful wants to come here on, on the show, I can tell you we are talking about a real maverick, somebody that has actually, like uh, me probably and, and the other people here in Hospitality Mavericks, is quite obsessive and maybe also on a quest to understand and sharing what great leaders and organizations know and do to deliver you know, better business results, but also impacts to all stakeholders. And uh, the most, you know, you know, mind-blowing thing is actually it was actually his work that led me to many of the interviews I've had with my guest here on the show, and especially Ari from Singermans, which has been mentioned many times and many times in some of the other work we do. So it's, it's a great honor to have you here on the show today, Bo. Uh, a huge maverick welcome. Well, <laughs> the honor is all mine, Michael. And uh, for, for people out there that hasn't been so lucky yet to, to, to trip over or finding your work, Small Giants, uh, The Great Game of Business, Finish Big, and, and many, many others, uh, could you tell a bit about you know who you are, your, your background, and the work you've been involved in over the years? I, um, I sort of got into writing about business. In fact, I got, I, I, when I was young, uh, I thought business was bad, frankly, and, and was responsible for uh, a lot of the problems that we had in the world. Uh, but that was before I knew anything. And uh, I, uh, it really began to change when I, I, need, I, you know, I was married and I had uh, two young kids and I needed a job. And I got recruited to uh, basically go to work for a financial services company called Fidelity. I told them that they probably didn't want to hire me because I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond, which I didn't at that point. And uh, they said, "They said no, no, no. They could teach me all that. They just they wanted somebody who could write." And so. Uh, uh, I wound up going to work there. I worked there for one year, and uh, it was very enlightening for me. I mean, it was it, it was just the whole world that I, uh, although I had many opinions about it from the outside, uh, once I got inside it, it was very, very different from what I imagined. And I actually enjoyed it a lot. And then before that, I had been, you know, a writer, mainly a freelance writer, uh, really writing for magazines and some newspaper work. And uh, I got a uh, call when I was at Fidelity from a friend of mine who had been in, I was living in Boston. I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, uh, I got a call from a friend of mine who had been an editor at Boston Magazine, and he was now working at this new startup magazine in Boston called Inc. Inc. And he said that the magazine was looking for people who had a background in sort of general interest magazine writing, but who knew something about business. Well, I've been at Fidelity for a year, so. Now I could say I knew something about business, not very much, but uh, it was good enough for them. And so they um, asked me to come over and talk to them, and I did. And uh, 
and then they offered me a job and uh it was a job that felt right to me since uh I, i'm not sure i would have had a long-term future at fidelity anyway so i in any event i i accepted the, their offer and that was when uh ink magazine was at that point it was it was really pretty much a startup um it was four years old and uh it was a build as the magazine for growing companies essentially it was a magazine for entrepreneurs and i had no real knowledge of entrepreneurship at all at that point but i found it very interesting because it was actually in the early 1980s when i showed up at ink magazine and that was in fact a very exciting time in the business world because it was really the beginning of the entrepreneurial economy um although and and you know we were we were there uh writing about it and basically observing what was going on all the other big magazines and newspapers they were focused on what was going on with japan what was going on with germany uh all these uh you know what what was going on with big companies really uh and, and big public companies for that matter and um the companies we were looking at were totally different i mean first place most of them were small they, they at least start had started out small um uh, some of them had grown and gotten to a point where they were already having a fairly big impact in the in the world and um this was all just this was all just it was happening around us i mean you know we got started in uh 1979 and uh the the first issue of ink magazine had an article about a company in uh California that was named after a fruit um and uh it was of course apple um and uh it, it which was a which was a, a very you know a, a small business then um we 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 put together a list of uh one of the things that actually this started before I got there we put together a list of the uh 500 fastest growing companies which is really the 500 fastest growing private companies in uh the United States and we publish that every year and in the uh second or third list there one of the companies was a little company in uh um uh, in Washington uh, state of Washington uh called Microsoft and uh it it was like n- number 85 on the list or something like that and uh so basically there were a lot of companies that today are household names and that you know we're all familiar with that were just very young very small companies then i remember right around that time business week they began to become aware of what was going on with entrepreneurs and they they came out but they they saw it through 
a, a specific prism and they came out with an issue um i remember it very clearly it said and the winner is ibm <laughs> and uh as if ibm had just conquered the whole uh uh personal computer market well you know ibm doesn't make personal computers anymore um and uh the winner was not ibm uh uh and it, it was it was more well it was hard to say back then because you know that was really the very early days of the personal computer business there were lots of different personal computer um most of which have disappeared uh personal computer companies and uh um but it was very it was an exciting time uh because there was so much happening and we were in a position to watch it and we were aware of it but most of our competitors uh which were the the big uh business magazines and newspapers they, they didn't seem to be aware of what was going on but we looked at it and, and said you know this is the future this is these companies uh you know while you're looking at japan and you're looking at germany and and the, and our competition there there the real future competition is going to come from these guys these uh small companies so i was i was there and i, I it was a very exciting time uh, actually to be at the magazine and i was there really i was the executive editor they had hired me as a senior editor but then after about i don't know 6 or 7 months they had a reorganization of the staff and they asked me to become the executive editor and i i said well i don't know what an executive editor is but uh, if you can show me i'm happy to do it so it was a very interesting time and one of the things that happened was that i began to see companies that were doing things that were very different from what other businesses were doing and one of them was this company in a little company in springfield missouri which was actually had this idea that they were going to teach everybody in the business how the business worked how to make money they called it the great game of business and basically they went to everybody and basically said forget what you've heard about business that you don't need an mba to understand it what you need to understand is that business is essentially a game and that it's like any game in order to play that game and to care about it or to to get involved in it there are three conditions that have to exist number 1 you have to know what the rules are um and number 2 you have to get enough information that you can follow the action and keep score you got to be able to know what's going on um and number 3 you've got to care about whether or not you win or lose you need to have a stake in the outcome um and uh 
Michael, you can probably, when, when I was writing about them and writing about this concept of the great game of business, I always thought, thought, thought in terms of cricket because uh, I did not I did not understand cricket at all. I still don't understand cricket. Uh, I don't know how it works or anything. And I thought, well, what would it take for me to understand cricket? I mean, you might have the same feeling about baseball or American football. <laughs> so I, I, basically, I began to write about this company and the visionary behind it was a young guy, younger than me, who had been the general manager of this company. The company had actually been a subsidiary of a, a giant company called International Harvester. And uh, International Harvester got into very big trouble in the early 1980s, and they were they couldn't pay their bills, and they were having to sell off you know, a lot of factories and closed down factories. They needed to get all the cash that they could so they didn't go out of business. And one of the ways that they were getting the cash was to, um, you know, sell factories. And one of the factories they were going to sell was this little factory in Springfield, Missouri. And the people who worked at the factory said, you know, it was a time of extremely high unemployment extremely high uh, interest rates. I mean, you know, it, it was a, it was a it was a time when the people who were working at the factory, you know, looked at this and said, you know, this is a terrible environment. You know, if they close down this factory, what are we going to do? Um, and so they said, well, maybe we should buy the factory from them, and then we can run it. And uh, so they put in a bid. Um, and actually, much to their surprise, um, the bid was accepted, and uh, and they were able to get a loan. The, these were not wealthy people. These were people who, you know, had to borrow money from their in-laws and uh, you know their cousins and what have you in order to scrape up a hundred thousand dollars. But then they borrowed $8.9 million. They had an 89 to 1 debt to equity ratio. Now, when you have an 89 to 1 debt to equity ratio, you're not really alive. Uh, you're, on life, you're on life support systems. And, you know, the, the slightest thing can happen and you're out of business. If you miss one payment or if you're late on one payment, you know, the bank will come in and seize your assets and sell them off, and then you're out of business. And the leader of this group, Jack Stack, he basically had learned a lot in terms of, there's a whole story that I've written about, about how they wound up coming up with this loan from the bank. In fact, the guy who gave them the loan was fired a, a week before the deal closed. And the the bank really did not want to have this deal. It was not a good deal. And so Jack had learned a lot in terms of going through that process. And he was the one who who basically had the idea of teaching everybody 
what you know this is how we, we the way we the way we're going to survive is that we have to make money and we have to generate cash we're going to go out of business you go out of business when you can't pay your bills that's what kills you and he realized they had to teach everybody in the company what it was how they were going to do this and they had to sort of give they felt they had about 100 employees they they, they said uh, basically they, they said to the employees if you can get a job somewhere else you should take it um because you know we're, we're hanging by a thread here but if if you're going to stay you've got to understand that uh what what we have to do to survive and um they set up a uh, a bonus program for the employees um which had a funny name it was called stop gooder which stood for skip the raise skip skip the praise give us the raise uh s t p g u t r and uh um basically the way that they got the bonus was they had to hit certain goals uh in in terms of one was sort of a balance sheet type of goal they had to learn what a balance sheet was and the other was an income statement goal basically uh uh based on profit and basically the the way they set it up was you know if we can turn a profit here in this company we'll keep half of it cuz we need it to grow the company but the other half we're we're going to share with all of you so you know if we can go out there we can do a really good job you'll all get bonuses based on having done such a great job well the the whole system which was needless to say totally revolutionary at the time i mean most business people who heard about it thought that these people were totally crazy they were out of their minds to think that uh these uh people on the shop floor some of whom barely had a high school education were actually going to be able to understand the business and 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 play a positive role in it but in fact it worked um and within a few years uh they had paid off most of their debt um their debt to equity ratio had gone from 89 to 1 to um you know like 3 to 1 or 2 to 1 um and they they had done it by as they put it playing the game and um uh well, needless to say, when I heard about all this, I was fascinated by it. Uh, I'd never ever heard of a company doing something like that, and I thought this is this is well. The other thing that they did was that they set up what's called an employee stock ownership plan. I don't know if you have it in 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 the UK, but in the United States, it's a it's an entity which allows basically all of the employees to become part owners of the company and um so that's that's what they did this they, they said look i mean 
Jack Stack felt, you know, this was just the most logical way to run a company, which is to have everybody be part of the ownership. And uh, so uh, what was happening was that as they were doing this, the, the value of the stock that they had in the ESOP was really going up tremendously. Um, and suddenly this the money that was in the ESOP uh when when the employees at first you know when they got the stock in the ESOP they didn't know what to make of it it was just some sort of trick or what and but as time went on they realized that um this was becoming quite valuable um you know, it eventually happened that some of them began to leave and, 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 and they were getting like a million dollars when they left. Um, and it was th this. So in any event, I um, I was fascinated by it. I, I had uh, supervised, edited, and in some cases wrote the articles that we had written about this company in Inc. Magazine, and uh, I was very enthusiastic about it. And, and I happened to know a uh, publisher, a book publisher, who had been, you know, who followed Inc. Magazine fairly closely because she thought that there were great possibilities for books. And it's true that she did get a lot of great ideas for books out of the magazine, but she heard about this and she was fascinated by the whole thing as well and so she came to me and said you know you should really write this book and i said well i have another job i'm the executive editor of this magazine and uh she said well i i you know i really think that this this could be an important book and i said well and I talked to the editor-in-chief of the magazine. It was my boss, basically. And uh, he said, no, you should go for it. This is this is an opportunity. So I wound up teaming up with Jack Stack and writing the book, the, the Great Game of Business. It became a very successful and influential book. I mean, I think, you know, there was somebody, there was uh, a book of the hundred uh, most important book business books of all time, and the main thing was that it had an impact on other people who who read about it and said, "Yeah, this is this is the way I want to run my company. Uh, this makes sense," or "This is what we're trying to do." There were a lot of people who were already trying to do something similar, and uh, they just didn't really have a context in which to look at it. I mean, you said your mother was doing something similar with uh, her food stores, and uh, uh, she wasn't alone. There, there were other people out there who were sort of trying to do the same thing, and what a lot of people told them they were crazy to be running the business this way. And then we came out with this book that said, basically, no, you're not crazy. This is, in fact, the best way to run a business. And um, so that had a 
that had a big impact on me, obviously. And that, um, you, you know, you asked me a question, Michael, about where I came from. That 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 was that was really that was the first uh, uh, book that I wrote, and um, I did have a follow-up book to that, a book called A Stake in the Outcome. It was really about how you created a certain culture is really the story of SRC and and how you create a, a certain culture where the people who work in the company really have the mindset of owners. Uh, they, they feel it's their company and they own it. And they not only feel that way, they really are owners. And that's, uh, you know, that's really what Jack was striving for. You and I mentioned earlier that what he what he was what he really wanted to have was not a business of employees. He wanted a business of business people. He wanted the people he was working with to understand the business and to be able to he wanted to be able to talk to them about the business, about what was really going on in the business. You know, if there was a if there was an issue, if, um, you know, one thing that uh, he realized early on was that, was that he kept running into recessions every 10 years or so. And he got to the point where he, he realized a recession, if you're prepared for it, a recession is not a bad thing because, in fact, suddenly everything becomes cheap. And uh, you, you can actually, you, but but you have to be prepared for it. And what does that mean? That means that you have a lot of cash. You're not you're not in you're not loaded with debt. You're not in trouble, and you have cash, and you can use that cash to go out and do things to buy companies. Um, and so he came up with a with a plan where uh, this would be back in the you know remember in the Great Recession of nine of two thousand eight. 2009, he basically said to everybody after that, we're going to have another recession in 10 years because we have one every 10 years. And, you know, he didn't know that there was going to be a pandemic, but he he, 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 he said it's going to happen. These things happen and we have to be prepared for it. And the way we're going to do that is I w we want to build up a cash reserve of $100 million dollars. So that when this recession comes, we're in great shape. Um, well, he had, he did, he succeeded in building up. He got everybody involved in it, obviously, and they built up this cash reserve, a hundred million dollars. So when the pandemic hit in uh, 2020, um, they were in very good shape. Uh, they they were able to keep going because they were an essential business. They were able to keep going during the pandemic. Plus, they had a, a lot of cash, and they could, you know, use that um, to to make sure that uh, the people who were impacted by the pandemic were not going to be hurt. Um, so, in any event, these two books that I wrote, those were my first two books. And that was really, in many ways, my education in business.
Very interesting, Bo, because I just wanted to touch on something because before we go on to, to the your next part of the journey is like Jackstack uh, and uh, and his activity and his way of thinking really formed your way. Why is this book are not new? This book has been around for, you know, I was almost say donkey's years. But well, why is the thing now, like we've just been through a pandemic, we're potentially hitting something that is not fun around the corner in business. Why is it this book has not been been practiced or all practiced more by by leaders because there's such a great example where you can go and look at the balance sheet. It's not hocus pocus. And there's other businesses you've written about in small giants. Why do you think that we still run businesses as we do? And you said something really interesting about taking a lot of death in to leverage the business or grow the business. And then when, as I call it, the shit hit the fans, you have no leverage. You are not ready. You can't navigate because you are yeah, straight away you're going to lose your assets or you have to sell out. Well, in fact, there are I, – I was just a, a month ago at a conference of all the companies that have adopted the great game of business. I mean, there there were uh, somewhere like a 1,000 people there and, uh, you know, a couple hundred companies that had – and, you know, basically they – the the proposition is pretty persuasive, which is, I mean, if you had two businesses who were operating in the same market and basically competing with each other, and in one business, you had 100 people, all of whom knew what the business was and what it was going to take to be successful. And they were, those 100 people were all working together to make that business successful. And in the other one, you had, uh, you know, 20 people at the top and the other 80 people were sort of waiting to be told what they should do, uh, but they didn't really have any understanding of where the business was or where it was going. If those two companies were competing with each other, which one do you think would be more successful? Obviously, the one with 100 people who were all working together to, uh, you know, to make the business as successful as possible. And that's really uh, the argument. There's a question, you know, why aren't more companies doing it? It's a question I ask myself all the time. And, you know, I, I, I understand that there are fears that uh, owners have. There's ego gets in the way. Uh, there are all kinds of things. But it, basically, if they look at it, in a very clear-eyed way, um, they would be adopting um, th this transparency in the business. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned small giants. Well, um, uh, a lot of those companies have, in fact, adopted Zingerman's, for example, um, practices uh well the the the, whole, the generic term for what uh uh SRC does with the great game of business is open book management and uh basically Zingerman's adopted it and uh, uh um has you know have found that um it's been very good for them i mean i'm sure Ari could 
uh, or Paul Saginaw, one of them, either one of them, any of anyone at Zingerman's could tell you about uh, all the great benefits that they've gotten out of it. So, I mean, Danny Meyer, uh, Danny Meyer's got a, uh, Danny Meyer's as one of the companies that's in Small Giants. It's a company called uh, Union Square Hospitality Group, and uh, it's a it's an extraordinary company. It's in its own right. I mean, I I don't know, uh, Michael, have you interviewed Danny Meyer for your show yet? No, well, we ha- we haven't yet, but we we have been in conversation with his office because it's it's really interesting. The whole what I think is interesting with uh, Union Square Hospitality and Danny Meyer, and I think lots of the audience are thinking, how do they deal with growth? and staying you know still small in the way they do things because there's obvious there's something going on in that organization with shake shack and all the other units of business they have and they can still create this kind of city you know set the table culture so yeah so so, so maybe you have an insight because i know in your book you have you not just talked with Danny Meyer once when you wrote Small Giants, you went back and revisited him. And I think there's some really interesting thing about the thoughts of growth because these companies grow, but they just grow in a different way than the hockey stick growth. Yeah. Danny, he did start... Shake Shack grew out of the Union Square Hospitality Group. Shake Shack was literally a little burger stand next to one of his restaurants in a park. And it was so popular that uh, he decided to open up another one in another part of New York City. And that one was so popular that he decided to open another one. And pretty soon he had all these uh, uh, Shake Shacks, but they were growing. uh, And the, the number was expanding they were expanding outside of new york and he realized that he he wanted to separate him from union square hospitality group because he wanted union square hospitality group to be a small giant and uh shake shack was growing much too fast uh that it didn't make sense if they they had to be a separate entity and so um he spun it off and you know it's a public company now and uh it's 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 a very different business i mean he made a lot of money on it but uh it it's it's it, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a small giant i don't know i i don't know what's going on inside shakespeare that i didn't i mean that all that happened after i wrote small giants um and um you know one of the things that Danny said to me was that one of the reasons that he spun off um Shake Shack as a separate business was because he wanted to preserve uh the small giant type culture of Union Square Hospitality Group which he had written about in, as you referenced, his book is an excellent book. Uh, I would highly recommend it called Setting the Table by Danny Meyer. Um, and he describes his whole approach to business and the way he, but, you know, 
with any of these things, it's one thing to talk about them. It's another thing to actually do them. And, um, you know, he's had to, he's run into obstacles at um, Union Square Hospitality Group that he's had to figure out what the problem was and then uh, do something to, you know, to keep going from there. But no, one thing I will say about Danny, I, I mean, I asked him, was he, he, he never got interested in open book management or the great game business. And uh, he just said he didn't think it was appropriate for them, which, you know, that's fine. I mean, this is not a religion. Uh, uh, he, 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 if, if, he felt that it was not going to work in uh, in his business. You know, that's his prerogative. He's still got a great company that I admire greatly. It, it's not a great game of business company. So actually, the way it, that I got to Small Giants was I was still working for Inc. Magazine. I was writing articles for Inc. Magazine, and one of the articles, I had heard about this company in Ann Arbor that was doing interesting, Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, that was doing interesting things and called Zingerman's. And uh, I decided uh, that I should go and write an article about them to see what they were doing. And you know, when I when I went, I was blown away by what I found. Um, that I think the thing that really st stuck out at me was the quality of the people who were there. That this company would have been able to attract people who'd had other jobs and other careers, uh, and that were far more lucrative in many cases. They were making a lot more money than they could possibly earn at Zingerman's, and yet they something had attracted them to Zingerman's. And the question I had, the sort of the the the, the uh, theme of the article that I wrote was really, what was it that had attracted all these people you know if you had people who had been partners in uh, big accounting firms who you know people who had built their own businesses and sold their businesses in order to come to ann arbor and um you know make gelato and cheese uh, um, if you had people who uh were making a lot of money in uh in accounting, and they, you know, this one person I have in mind who, who, who left that whole career, and and she came to uh, Zingerman's to 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 run the bakehouse. She was making bread and and pastries, and uh, you know, this is a, this is a big change. Uh, you know, there were people who had had successful technology companies. Who had uh, uh, sold their companies in order to come to Zingerman's and, you know, r run a delicatessen. Um, and 
so I wrote about that in I was very I was fascinated by what they had done and I wrote an article about it. It was called um The Coolest Small Company in America and uh it was you know, it was the story of uh how Zermans which is started off as simply a delicatessen in Ann Arbor had be evolved into a community of businesses, all of which were food related, all of which were in the Ann Arbor area. Uh, many of them led or staffed by people who had uh, really started at, 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 at the deli or at other businesses. And, uh, you know, how did this happen? And how, how, why have they been able to attract all these, uh, really stellar people to come to Ann Arbor to do it? And it was, it was a very fun story to do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got to spend time in Ann Arbor and eat Zingerman's food, which wasn't a hardship. Uh, uh, and, um, so the article came out and it got a, it got a big response. Uh, I think there were a lot of people who were sort of inspired to read about Zingerman's. And uh, uh, one of the people who read it was a publisher in New York. And he uh, contacted me and he said, you know, he thought that there might be a book in, 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 in this article. And I thought, I didn't understand it first. I, I said, you know, I thought, well, I could see that there might be a book for Ari and Paul, uh, uh, the founders, uh, Ari Weinswagen, Paul Saginaw. There might be, but I, I couldn't see how there was a book for me. Uh, but I agreed to go meet with the publisher, and the publisher said, no, 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 I'm not talking about a book about Zingerman's. He said, I'm talking about a company that had the opportunity to become much bigger, much faster. You know, they could have franchised. They could have raised private equity. There were all kinds of things that they could have done, but they chose not to do any of them because they had this idea that whatever they produced, they wanted it to be great and unique. And that's how they had built the delicatessen. And they had this idea that, well, gee, they could build other businesses, food-related businesses that could be great and unique in their own right. So they could have a, a bakery, you know, a, a bakehouse, as they call it. You know, they could have a restaurants, they could have a catering service, they could have a, a mail order service, the, you know, the, they could have a coffee company, they could have a gelato company and a cheese company. There are all these different food-related businesses that they, they could be set up and that um, uh, each of them could really strive to be the best at what they did. And the publisher said to me, well, he wondered if there were other companies out there that had had this same 
option. They had an option to get much bigger, much faster, but they chose not to because they had other goals that they considered more important than, than just getting big. And uh, this was a, 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 a heretical notion, you know. I mean, at, at the time, everybody thought, well, you go into business, of course, you build it to be as big as possible. That's the whole idea, you know, and, and then you sell it uh, and you make a lot of money. And uh, here was these guys in Ann Arbor who didn't think that way. Were there other people who also had started businesses and sort of had, had also made a similar choice? Thank you so much, Bo, for sharing your great insights and learnings from observing what some of the best leaders and companies are doing in the world. We look forward to hearing more next week. Now ask yourself, what can I learn from thinking and acting like a small giant? If you want to learn more about the small giants, tune in to our bonus episode, Hospitality and Infinity Game, episode number seven, Small Giants. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies and tools to help leaders become better every day. Check them out at BizSimply.com or via their social at BizSimply or BizSimplyHQ. And you can also email them directly at podcast at BizSimply.com. A huge thank you to Fina Charlson, the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. I really appreciate that you're listening in. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels, which all can be done via the website, hospitalitymavericks.com. If you have any ideas or feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. Find out more about us and subscribe to the weekly newsletter, Maverick Talk, via hospitalitymavericks.com. And now, remember to get your free version of the new white paper, The Six Tenants of Agile Hospitality. Six tenants every leader needs to survive and thrive in a new era of hospitality. Click the link in the show notes. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be maverick!